My talk, as you know, is on adaptation to climate change, impacts on our transportation infrastructure. I want to st state off at the top that one of the things I will not be talking about is the effects of transportation on climate change. That, that's a whole different topic and, and can go on. But adapting to climate change is quite a timely, um, quite a timely discussion today because of the recent release of several reports. So these are my primary sources of information. I'll start out with um, potential impacts of climate change on US transportation. This is the recently released report uh, from the NRC Transportation Research Board, just released last month. Um, and as they were working on this report, they decided they realized they needed some additional information. And so they commissioned several articles. And one of the articles they commissioned me to write was climate variability and change with implications for transportation. And this report, our paper features prominently in the NRC report, briefly on it, that this was well beyond what I could have done alone, but I was fortunate to line up a, a good team, both of Marjorie McGurk and, and Tammy Houston from my institution at NOAA's National Climatic Data Center, Andy Horvitz from the National Weather Service, and Michael Weiner from um, the Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And this report as well was released at the same time as the NRC report was. The third report is Weather and Climate Extremes in a Changing Climate. This is a US climate change science program synthesis and assessment report, it's number 3.3. Its probable release date, the last I heard, is we're expecting late April to probably be able to formally release this. I'm one of the, one of the many authors on it, so I know what's in there before it's released. And the fourth one, again, was just released last month, the impacts on climate variability and change on transportation systems and infrastructure, the Gulf Coast study. So this is a, a climate change report that focuses just on transportation in the, in the Gulf Coast. And that's CCSP 4.7. So to get us all in the same mindset, what do we mean by transportation? You know, it's planes, trains, automobiles, as well as trucks and, and buses, both commuter and long haul. And often these are related that, you know, if cars can't get to the airport because of snowstorm, the airport is just as effectively closed as if the planes couldn't get to the airport. Dealing with inland barge traffic, ferries, nearshore and ocean cargo and up the St. Lawrence Seaway, and then pipelines as well. When we started our, our analysis, we tried to figure out, in, under, in order to understand how it would be impacted by climate change, it was had to see what weather and climate issues climate um, transportation was sensitive to. And for weather, it was primarily extremes, temperature extremes, precipitation extremes, and storms. And this makes sense because the infrastructure was designed to handle most of the common weather that we have. You know, it may slow things down a little bit, but basically it can handle the common um, occurrences. It's the more extreme events that have problems. For climate, it's primarily that we're talking about is uh, general warming, drought, sea level um, changes, and potentially Arctic sea ice. Um, I will be going through to, to get a sense of what can um, how these Im impact transportation, each of these topics later, both in weather and climate. Okay, so what is the adaptation to climate change? Um, just Tuesday of last week, um, Virginia Burkett from the USGS made a comment. She said, adaptation is just better planning. I like that view of adaptation, you know, and 
Planning, we look into the future quite a ways. Roadways, typically, about 25 years into the future. Railroads, 50 years. Um, that bridges and underpasses are designed with 100 years of service in mind. And major hubs, we should look even farther out because you know, if you build an airport, you're going to start ha have stimulating growth and development around the airport. So let's deal with an example of climate change. Say you've been asked to design a new bridge. So the things you take into consideration, there's many different aspects, but a couple of them are current traffic and then potential future traffic. And similarly for adaptation, you look at current weather, but you also look at potential future weather and climate. And an example of that is this beautiful bridge here. This is the Confederation Bridge, which is about eight miles long. It connects Prince Edward Island to Canada, the Canadian mainland. And the design for this took into account the possibility of a one-meter sea level rise due to climate change when they built this. So that's an example of adaptation. In our report, um, there's three basic analyses that we used to see how the climate was changing and, and aspects that impacted transportation. I want to show these briefly to you. Um, one is looking at extremes, changes in extremes. These are from daily data. And we used uh, a formulation for a variety of different indices that, um, that was coordinated by a World Meteorological Organization expert team on climate change detection and indices. So these are robust measures of extremes. And this shows the number of days in, uh, in January with temperature less than the 10th percentile. So these are the very cold days of the year. And the percentiles are determined from 61 to 90. But you can see that the 70s were quite cold a lot of days, and we've had a decrease since then. So there's been fewer cold days. We also use model projections. And these are all the models the results from all the models that are run for the IPCC fourth assessment report. There's about 20 models in here. And we looked at them in different regions of the country. We also looked at some indices that, that because of the coordination by this WMO expert team, um, some of the models saved off um, some of the indices derived from daily data. And I'll show you an example of that later. If you look at these, these trends up, this is a, there's various scenarios that were used of how much CO2 would be changing and other greenhouse gases. And they're based on kind of a, a storyline about technology and conservation and population changes. But should this, this scenario verify that what we're seeing here is the trend up. You can see the median line. And then, of course, sort of the gold color. This is what is very likely. It's likely that the change, climate change would be within that realm. And it's very likely it would be within the realm of the gray. And the scale here on this on the y-axis is equivalent to going from Minneapolis, Minnesota to the southern tip of Illinois, Cary, Illinois. So when you see a change of equivalent from here to here, and if we're dealing with um, Minneapolis, that'd be equivalent to moving down to about St. Louis in terms of temperature change. So the projections in this um, fairly CO2 intensive future is um, considerable warming. And all the models tend to agree on this quite well. So I wanted to show precipitation as, as well, and partly because to show that the models do not agree, that there's a great deal of certain uncertainty or rather different possibilities into the future. So you can see here that, that the median may be going up slightly, but, but there's, a long, there's a big spread here in between. Some of the models are showing increases and some decreases. So we're quite uncertain about how total precipitation 
will be changing in, in the future based on the model runs. But there are some aspects of precipitation that are quite well, um, quite well supported by all the model runs, and we have an index of that that I'll show you later. We also looked at future local extremes. I mean, transportation impacts locally. And this is a threshold that impacts 110 degrees Fahrenheit it in, in Dallas. It impacts um, maintenance on transportation. It impacts potentially um, railroad track buckling and stuff. So this is taking the model projections into the future and analyzing the local possibilities for the number of days above 110 in Dallas. And currently is the blue. So we currently have about a 30% chance of one day above 110 and perhaps a 5% chance of three days above 110. But if we look out 50 years into the future, which is the red curve, we're seeing that there's like a 75% chance of at least one day above and you know, perhaps a 20% chance of five days above that. So these are kind of relevant um, metrics to, to look at how transportation might be impacted. But as I said, the implications are very condition-specific and regionally specific, so I'll go into some of these details. One of the things as shown in the earlier slide is less very cold weather. The impact on transportation from that will be positive, generally. Easier maintenance in many forms of transportation, and particularly in maritime transportation, less ice jams and less buildup of ice on the decking. So this is a positive impact on transportation. At the same time, we're expecting more very hot weather. And these are generally detrimental changes in transportation. That, that really high weather, the very warm, um, very hot days, can increase railroad track buckling. And the adaptation approach to that is when tr new track is laid, there's a variety of different procedures they can take that can raise or lower the temperature, which it, it buckles. So if, you, if it's planned accordingly, looking to the future, you can fix it so that they don't buckle under the, under the temperature scenario we're looking at. Asphalt highway rutting increases on, on very warm days. And again, there's rut-resistant asphalt, so there's different mixtures you can do. And also, airplane runway distances increase. And this is mainly going to impact um, very high station, high airports like Denver or very warm airports like Phoenix. And basically, this is just a simple physics analysis that as as the temperature increases, the air gets thinner, gets lighter, and you get less lift from it. And so the adaptation procedure uh, approaches that can be done for that include you know, lighter planes, stronger engines, but also changing the flight time. So there might be more flights going in, in landing and taking off in the evening rather than in the middle of the afternoon when the temperatures are, are at their highest. This is Arctic sea ice resulting from general temperature warming. This is the minimum in each year shown, and that usually occurs in September, late September, actually. You can see how the sea ice has been decreasing over the last, uh, well, this starts when we had satellites that could measure ice in there in 1979. And you can see this very last record was a record low. There was uh, lots of different factors, including temperature, that impacted wind direction stuff. But you can see the Northwest Passage is actually open in this last year. It didn't stay open very long, but it was open. And there's, everybody is projecting that the Northwest Passage will open up, and it will save transportation a lot of miles, particularly like from Europe to Japan, and it can save 2,500 miles. There's different projections for when that will occur. Most people do not think it will occur very soon, and that this is tricky, that 
It's only going to be open during the summer. They'll still freeze up during the winter. And this inland passage is not an easy thing to navigate. It's shallow. There's a lot of rocks and islands and stuff. So it isn't suddenly going to be you know, a, a very easy thing to, to start using instantly. Additional climate aspects from general warming. In, in Alaska, there's a lot of thawing of permafrost. We're seeing that currently is projected to continue into the future. And pipelines and road beds that are on top of permafrost as it thaws um, are having a variety of problems. There's different engineering solutions you can do for that. And one of them is, in some places, the permafrost is a fairly shallow layer, so you can actually remove that before you're doing some construction. Um, we're also seeing a decrease in the season of ice roads and frozen railroads. In New Hampshire, when they're logging, the loggers prefer to haul the timber out in the winter when the ground is frozen. In the spring, when it starts turning muddy, it can be much more difficult to haul out timber. So that season gets shorter. And some remote mines in Alaska and even, even oil um, facilities, um, exploration facilities and such, need to be um, fueled during, this, during the winter when trucks can run across frozen lakes, can run across frozen bogs and, and, and swamps and stuff and fields without doing very much environmental damage. And so the key here is that this season of ice roads is going to be decreasing, the, how long it'll be frozen solid. So as these decrease, we're going to see um, the need for for uh, the adaptation can, can have more trucks supply this, or they can be adapting by building some roads in there at, as well that would be a, more of an all-season road. Precipitation and weather. I mentioned that, that total precipitation changes are quite uncertain, but we are seeing changes in certain measures. And this is a figure showing every, every five percentage of of precipitation. And what's shown here is a very light precipitation is projected to decrease um, through all the different scenarios and based on all the model results, while heavy precipitation is increasing. And we can see that in this index. This is one of the, the, the expert team indices that was saved off. This is the amount of precipitation from the 95th percentile of the daily, daily measures of precipitation. And all the models are projecting this to increase in the future. And even with the total realm of uncertainty, you can see it's projected that heavy precipitation will be increasing. And this is the observation. This is actually for North America um, for the CCSP report. But this is the observations. And the observations, as well as you can see, are showing that we're having an increase in the, in the heavy precipitation. And this can have an impact on transportation. Heavy precip um, can slow down all forms of transportation. But it also lead to floods, which can damage um, bridges and scour around there some of their supports, as well as um, pipelines can be damaged by heavy precipitation. One of the interesting things about climate change, and it takes some people a little while to get to wrap their heads around this, is that, that we can predict increase in flooding, increase of heavy precipitation, and an increase in drought. In this case, the wording is, um, projected increase in summer drying and likelihood of drought. And it's basically, a, the models are kind of robust in showing some of the changes in the, in the center part of, of continents of the summer drying. If you don't have a major change of precipitation, which we cannot project yet, but you do have a change in temperature, that going up is going to lead to drying. As the atmosphere warms, it can hold more water vapor. 
And the more water vapor then has a potential to rain, to supply rain for the heavy events. So the heavy events can get stronger, but also the warmer atmosphere can hold more water, so it tends to have more drying and a potential for drought. And droughts can hamper the main impact in transportation. And we're just limiting this to question that transportation is um, barge traffic. And, uh, and so that can be hampered in it. And also the general warming would lead to a shorter snow seasons and then a longer rainy, rainy season. And this has a positive impact on transportation, particularly highway safety, whereas there's a lot of winter accidents in, uh, when it's snowy and frozen. Storms, I'll deal with several different storms. And we'll start out with Hurricane Katrina here. One of the features I want you to see is that it, when it gets over warm water, it really speeds up. It, that's when it really intensifies. There's a lot of factors that impact hurricanes. Sea surface temperature is one of many. But in this scale, sea surface temperature goes to, increases to the right, and the strength of the storm increases going up. So what you can see from this is that if the sea, sea surface temperatures are warm, you can have any strength of storm. So there can be weak storms, there can be strong storms. There's a lot of factors that go into it besides sea surface temperature. But the strongest storms, the category five storms, can only occur when the sea surface temperature is warm. And, and all the models are projecting an increase in sea surface temperature. Let me see if I can get this. To run one more time, you can see how it organizes over the warm water. Really speeds up. Because there's a lot of different aspects of hurricanes, the hurricane community is somewhat divided on how climate change might impact it. Some people look more at changes in, in how the wind fields will, will occur, others in sea surface temperature. And so, my view is that if you're trying to understand, get a reasonable estimate of how hurricanes are likely to change, you should not pay attention to one or two individuals' opinions, including my own, because there, there's a variety of opinions out there. But instead, pay attention to reports that synthesize all the best information currently available and pr produce the results. And in this case, we're seeing CCSP 3.3 states that hurricane rainfall and wind speeds will likely increase. And with the wind speeds comes increase in storm surge. And with the increase in storm surge come pipeline infrastructure vulnerable, and so particularly is um, barge and marine transportation. In this figure, it just shows um, a high CO2 analysis and a, and a control analysis. And you can see the strong storms here. Um, that's category five there, um, increase in that, that realization of the future. Extratropical storms are also projected to increase. As you can see from this figure, the strong storms are increasing. CCSP says they're likely to become more frequent. And these are the low pressure centers that you see on the maps, the nor'easters. The maybe mainly think of them as wintertime storms in the United States. So these are projected increase. And one of the impacts is that you get these strong storms coming over, and there's um, and can soften the railroad roadbeds. One of the adaptation aspects can be more frequent checking of the roads, roadbeds for stability in light of, of storm events. Um, one of the things uh, designers of local rail and, and commuter bus service should keep in mind is that, that during severe storms, ridership increases. And flooding may force um, freight to switch from barges to trains. 
I kind of feel sorry for barges in that too much water and it presents a problem, and too little water and it also presents a problem for them. Thunderstorms are tricky. Um, currently, CCSP 3.3 says there's no definitive statements are possible about the future of tornadoes or severe thunderstorms. So we don't have much to say about that, except that some of the conditions that can produce hail are projected to increase, which is a lot of low level, the availability of low level moisture and some other aspects. Um, and hail greater than one inch can damage aircraft. I've been telling you a lot about what is projected to change and what we know, and I also want to point out what we don't know. High winds can, can influence uh, transportation in a negative fashion. There are winds associated with storm, but there's also just other high wind events. And right now, it's very uncertain. We can't really say how strong surface winds are, are anticipated to change. Visibility is not in any of the global climate models. That's not something that is kept track of. But there are some factors that do influence visibility that, that we are seeing at work here. So we're seeing, um, and, um, we're seeing increases in summertime temperatures, which leads to earlier snow melt. Um, and therefore, wildfires, it's already been noticed and, and quantified out west. So greater wildfire potential. We're also, as it's summer drying, is greater potential. We see uh, more potential for blowing dust. And so um, these are things that may increase problems of low visibility. But all the effects of this will be local. You know, they'll be local in certain regions as, as they experience these conditions. Another very robust measure um, both historically and projecting in the future is changes in sea level. You can see this is from 1880, even earlier to the present. And currently, sea level is rising about one and a quarter inches per decade. And this doesn't seem like much, but it's been rising for quite a while. And is projected, the rise is projected to increase in the future. But the, it, there's a couple of other impacts of this that I'll get to shortly. But first, that this rise in sea level is due primarily to two factors. The, the dominant rise, at least so far, has been due to the expansion of the oceans, that as the oceans warm, they expand. And so that's part of the sea level rise. And then we're also getting melting glaciers and melting, melting ice sheets that are contributing to some of the sea level rise. But sea level rise is just, global rise is just part of it. This local rise is where it's really important. And the land isn't necessarily staying still. It feels like it is to us. But over long periods of time, you can see the, the change in the land. And particularly in the southeast, we're seeing land subsidence. So here, Galveston, Texas, we've changed the scale from metric to, um, to English. So that's the foot. So you can see Galveston, Texas, the sea level rising dramatically. Only a small part of that is due to sea level rise. A lot of it is due to natural geologic um, behavior of that region, but also due to um, pumping of, of fresh water resources um, and aquifers from below the area is then shrinking. So you can see New York, I'll be mentioning New York shortly, its sea level has been rising there as well. And in Alaska, in Sikta, Alaska, the sea level has been decreasing. And the reason for the change in that part of Alaska is glacial rebound. As glaciers melt, the land becomes, the area becomes lighter and it starts rising up um, and the response of the earth crust to, to floating on top of the mantle is very slow. So this response 
of glacial rebound is due to melting of ice that occurred hundreds and even thousands of years ago. This is a figure from the, um, the Gulf Coast study. And it sh shows airports listed here and the storm surge, how it will go in. This is a red is zero to five foot storm surge. Can, can be damaging a lot of different, um, different airports there. But also, you know, I showed you how the sea level was rising in New York City. And currently, 12 of the 16 New York City tunnel entrances are below the storm surge of a Category 2 hurricanes. So as sea level rises, it's not, not just the slow inundation from sea level rise is going to impact it, but it's the storm surge on top of a sea level rise. So as the sea level rises further, the storm that would be able to flood, flood New York City tunnels becomes weaker and weaker. They would be able to produce that storm surge. So it's a combination of sea level rise and storm surges is um, of the most concern in, in a lot of transportation infrastructure. Here's an example of a bridge that was damaged by st storm surges, Hurricane Katrina and the Bay St. Louis Bridge. And my understanding is that the spans, the concrete spans going across from the different support pillars, trapped air underneath them as the water level rose. So this air helped make them a little bit lighter and coupled with the wave action, helped knock the spans off their supports. The new bridge, from what I understand, is at least 20 feet higher in all places, and parts of it are much higher in there. It did take into account both sea, potential sea level rise and storm surge. But we will see coastal flooding, and we've seen this increasing over, you can see from the last 100 years. So you realize that railroads, you know, were started to really be built around the country in the 1850s. You know, it was a lot of a boom of railroads here. So a lot of these are 150 years old. And so even if the designers had a really great understanding of the current climate and could design the infrastructure to be exactly adapted to the current climate, that does not mean that they're adapted to the climate of 2008. So this is particularly true along the Gulf Coast where their subsidence is, seems to be stronger. But we have to keep in mind that some of our infrastructure is not currently adapted because it was designed a long time ago and conditions have changed. A relative sea level rise of two feet that's combined climate change and subsidence. According to the Gulf Coast study, they said this was a, a plausible scenario for 50 years from now. And the 50 years from now, a rise of two feet would permanently inundate 2,400 miles of major roadways. And that's 60, and also 60% of the facilities of the ports in the regions. The adaptation to this, I mean, there's ways you could adapt the transportation infrastructure to be above the, the flood rise. It would be expensive. But the probability of all the people staying there that the transportation served as the waters rise two feet is, is even more dubious. And then you have potential for storm surges on top of that. So some of this adaptation may well be migration out of the region. Um, one of the terms used is called the adaptation imperative. That, you know, is adaptation not just a good idea, but we will adapt to the climate as it changes. How expensive that will be depends on how great the climate changes. So mitigation 
you know, conservation of energy, um, decrease in emissions or the slowing of the growth of emissions of greenhouse gases may alter the future that we have to adapt for, but the changes are already in store for us um, based on the current amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that we will have to adapt to the future. And so the question really isn't, you know, can we adapt or will we adapt, but will we do it proactively? Will we plan ahead? It seems obvious to me that if we build a bridge right the first time, it will be less expensive than, than rebuilding it after it gets damaged. And currently, most of the transportation designs takes the current climate into effect. We need to start changing that and, and looking to the future as well. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of, of good information on how much adaptation costs. And you know, as I said, there's little quantification of how well adaptation works. And some of this makes sense to me. That if you think about it, if, if um, 10 years ago, we built a bridge that was designed to handle a one meter increase in sea level rise, a one meter sea level rise. And the sea hasn't risen that much, it's only risen you know, one or two inches, then we haven't, you know, we don't have the information on how well it works, and we probably won't for many decades to come. So part of this information, you know, it makes sense that it's not, not real easy to pull out. But there have been some attempts, and this is one is from Larson et al. in Alaska. And it looks at all infrastructure. You can see this is how they split it up. So there's a lot of water and sewage, but also airports and roads, harbors, and some other aspects. And according to their analysis, um, ordinary wear and tear, the estimated replacement of infrastructure as it wears out, is going to cost $32 billion. And when you add climate change to it, you're adding 3.6 to $6.1 billion, so another 10 or 20%. And the same 10 or 20% seems to hold true as we look into from 2000. 6 to 2080. You know, we're talking big numbers, you know, 5.6 million, but it's also, if you put that into perspective, just 7.6 billion, put that into perspective, you know, and that's 10% of what we'll be charging for um, just regular, you know, maintenance on, on, on transportation and other infrastructure. So in conclusions, you know, transportation is definitely sensitive to climate change. And there are winners and losers. There's some aspect of transportation that will benefit, and there's some aspects that will be detrimental to. And as CSP 3.3 wrote, however, on balance, because systems have adapted to their historical range of extremes, the majority of the impacts and events outside this range are expected to be negative. And I'll read that once more, because this isn't just talking about you know, global warming, but you know, if the globe was cooling, it also would be have negative events because it's outside the realm. It's the change is, is where the problem comes from. On balance, because systems have adapted to their historical range of extremes, the majority of the impacts and events outside that range are expected to be negative. And so planning for new infrastructure should take climate change into consideration and, and pay attention to the projections. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Ah, there is an audience. Uh, yeah, there you are. Yeah, he is. Anyway, um, questions? Right here, and then, yeah. Hi, I'm Sylvia Brown, policy manager for Safe Routes to School National Partnership, and was wondering about the, um, the transportation changes and impact. Is that a matter of build versus no build, and does it look at the types of material that need to be put in place 
I'm not sure I understand the question real well. Can you repeat it one more time? Well, just Make a sure matter of you you're saying the impact of climate change could be rise of sea level or um, land uh, going away because of water infiltration. So are you, uh, is there some sort of advocacy for building some, some bridges or roadways or not building, or can it be dealt with by uh, using new material that's that's being developed, perhaps researched. Okay, um, thank you. I'm not sure about all the different advocacies that are going out there. Um, if I was an advocate, it would be for sound science-based decisions to make based on, on what's happening. There's lots of different forces at work here. When you're dealing with sea level rise, we're also dealing with insurance and whether insurance, you know, and how expensive it is in more vulnerable locations. So there's a wide variety of, of aspects to it. There's also technical aspects of designing things. So for example, if you were designing a railroad track that, that you might, where the, where the water goes through, you know, the different culverts, you might make bigger culverts to plan ahead. So there's different materials you can use that way. So it's a, it's a wide mix of things that will have to be applied. But um, in this report, I'm not advocating, I'm trying not to advocate anything specific. One of the features you see here is that the, it ramps up, so it goes faster and faster, the change. The anticipated change increases over time. So we're, the projections here, you know, are, are uh, less than what we're seeing going up, going forward. So it's, uh, there's always this potential. Um, are we ahead or are we behind? It depends on, you know, when you were designing things and whether we're taking the right information into account. And it's difficult because you know, there's some uncertainty with some of the model projections. So it's, it's not a real, a real key piece of information that we can say, use this exact bit of information. One of the things the Weather Service is currently doing, it's recalculating their estimated return periods on, um, on like the maximum return period for a five-minute storm and a 30-minute storm, a one-hour storm, 24-hour storm, with the latest data that they have. And so with this latest data, they're seeing many changes just over the past. So in that aspect, we're behind the curve in that we're currently not designing to the current climate. We're looking at some, some more historical aspects. So this, this is a great effort that they've had, had to update these, these measures. But also we're looking at things like at my institution of, of trying to come out with, with metrics like of normals that doesn't look at a trailing 30 years, but you know, perhaps looks at 30 years it might be centered on today, but that also includes projections into the future. So we're trying to incorporate more of that information for, um, to make it available to people making um, infrastructure decisions. Let me add on to his answer just for a second. We've had two speakers come in here in this series in the last six months. Both of them showed emissions of CO2 on charts that looked like this but weren't temperature there was CO2. And even the IPCC Worst case scenarios, the emission trajectories that we're on now are in excess, they're above the worst case scenarios. So, if that's any measure of, of you know, how far we are relative to these, if this were carbon dioxide up here, we would be off the charts slightly because we're higher than the worst case scenarios. Anyway, just wanted to add that. Question here, there. A lot of uh, right-to-way for roads and rail or along coastal zones. 
And because of the storm surge that we talked about, you know, one simple thing would, might be to raise them one or two feet. But would you hypothesize that that may not be a long-term 100-year solution if you're going to have increased storm surge because of this, and it might be better to look for other rights away that aren't along coastal zones? Well, there's a wide variety of, of problems associated with that. And one is that in coastal zones where the coast, you know, gradually slopes down, that it's, I think it's a one in, in 150 um, slope that, that as if sea comes up one foot, it tends to go in 150. And so I hope I have that, those figures correct. But so, you know, the coast can be eroding as and coming up. So just reinforcing an existing structure can be, can be short-sighted in that, that the changes in the coast may be coming. But there may be, you know, there's a lot of mixes of, of different possibilities. There isn't, you know, one answer to fit all problems. Yeah, yes. Hey, uh, it seems like for a lot of the effects of climate change that are going to um, impact transportation, there are good um, national models. But I'm wondering um, what kinds of local and regional models are available, available for the planners, the cities, and states that are going to do a lot of dirty work with, you know, deciding how they're going to adapt. That's an excellent question. Um, what about, instead of just national models, local and regional models? Um, one of the problems currently is there hasn't been a lot of adaptation. There's been a lot of discussions about it and I'm kind of like moving in that direction. But there, there hasn't been a lot of examples that I could find to point to. But I can, could find a lot of information, such as King County in, in um, the county that Seattle is in has done um, some adaptation analyses for, the, for their region in associated King County and the University of Washington. So there's a, trying to develop a lot of information out there to provide decision makers on, on how to plan for, how to adapt in, in some of their consideration. We're doing some of that work at National Climatic Data Center as well. We have an urban planner on board as a, as a cooperative agreement, and he's working on, on a climate change manual that can help for urban planners. So there's work work being done, but there's more work has to be done. But I haven't, I've seen a lot of publication. In fact, the Heinz Center has a, has a report that lists adaptation planning um, efforts that are done in, in different places in terms of, of, you know, like the report from Seattle and other, other places. There's a lot, so there is a lot of local information coming out about that. Mm -hmm. um, I have uh, one question about cost issue and, and another one about road failure, like, like um, I guess I'm wondering, like, even the study about the Gulf Coast, the course studies, and none of them are talking about coast uh, cost. It's like, for example, New Orleans, um, no one's saying we're going to, not, not many people are saying we should be, you know, moving out of, we should be abandoning New Orleans, but it shouldn't be rebuilt exactly as it, as it was. And I guess it seems like those like, cost issues is fundamental. I guess I'm wondering where, do you have any idea where that kind of cost information might be coming from? Uh, where, where it should come from or where it might come from? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure where the cost information comes from. There's like policy windows after a disaster where changes can take place, but it's also difficult. And, and part of what you see in the cost, I think we're short-sighted in some aspects, is, is it's called the levy effect, which is described in CCSP 3.3 when it's released, which is, you know, which is part of the problem that happened in New Orleans, that you build levees, 
and then people think it's safe. And so then they start building the other stuff. So you start trying to take in one measure to try to reduce the risk, then increase, has potential increased long-term risk because that encourages more development in an area that is still prone, that is still subsiding, and still prone for, for greater wash-in. So it's a complex aspect, and, and I'm not sure what a good answer to, to your question of where the source of the information is. This is an important issue. If I just might just about uh, non-coastal areas that we're talking, not just road, road track failures, but maybe whole slope failures. I guess I'm wondering if there's, if there's uh, between wildfires and still, uh, increased precipitation, whether or not that's you know, how, to, how to quantify or characterize that, that uh, phenomenon. Well, some of that is, is clear on the bigger, on the larger scale, you know, where all the models are projecting the same thing that the in situ data are showing that, that heavy precipitation will be increasing. And designers can take that into consideration. Yes, it's not just coastal, it's not just culverts, but, you know, it's designing slopes and how you deal around that and um, take care of the slopes so you don't have, have washing over it. That, yes, is something serious that has to be taken in all sorts of areas. But we don't have the smaller scale you, you take of the model, the more noise you have in the system. So you can't really project really accurately what's going to happen in Los Angeles County. But you can say might might be how the changes will what changes might be occurring for the whole region. Question here in the back, and I'll get over this time. Are some policy Um, no. It's, it's a valid question, and, and some of the question of the biofuels, you know, is relevant because it doesn't just impact, you know, one region, but it in, and one, one aspect. I mean, if we start growing more corn, we're talking about potential more runoff, aspects in, impacting in, in the environmental aspects in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's very complex interactions, and I think we do definitely need to take into consideration, but... I have not looked at that as far as transportation goes, and I don't know of anybody that has. figuring out what to do with it. 
including abandoning it or making a costly um, rehabilitation that would pay off if it's a facility that has a long service life. Or on roads, maybe you can do it as you go and see what happens because the road surface you're rehabbing more frequently. So I think um, the, the report that, that we did tried to lay out what seems like some kind of common sense places to begin, but it's very basic because a lot of the work really hasn't gotten there yet, so you can't put a nice global cost estimate on it. It's very, infrastructure is very local, and a lot of the work, the way work to identify even what's critical hasn't yet been done. Yeah, that's a good point because I think we're just beginning to start a conversation about adaptation. And I think the literature search she was referring to kind of points to that fact that we have very little to draw upon from the literature. That said, other questions here? I have one question, Tom, and that had to do with uh, this idea of climate not being a linear function. Yes, um, that's, that's a difficult challenge. And often there are step functions, and we're seeing that in some environments where you get over a particular threshold and you have much greater impacts. Um, we find that in some of the biological systems like mountain pine beetle in British Columbia, that if winter kills at minus 40 degrees, the larva. And when we started not having temperatures that cold, suddenly it wasn't a linear function, suddenly they survived much better, and we had a you know, major dieback of, of lodgepole pines in British Columbia. So a lot of functions. And like we think of El Nino and La Nina, and you have a warming, it doesn't necessarily shift them both up. It might decrease one and increase the other more often. And so there's a lot of different aspects of the pulsing of the climate system that has to be taken in consideration. I think a lot of that has to go when you look at local scale events and what weather really impacts your, uh, your particular um, parameter that you're looking at. Well, what struck me was the Gulf Coast series, the two figures you showed on the Gulf, and the yeah. impact of sea level rise with subsidence and storm surge and 